You're listening to episode 183 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. If you've listened to the podcast for any amount of time, you probably know that while I primarily interview nonfiction writers, I love to talk about fiction. Increasingly, reading novels is a part of my reading, and uh, it's been my privilege before to have some novelists on the podcast to talk fiction, and today's guest is certainly within that group. Uh, Jessica Hooten-Wilson has been teaching literature for a number of years, as well as writing about literature herself, and so she joins me today to talk about the value of literature in the life of the believer, why novels and fiction are an important part of growth what she calls the pursuit of holiness, the scandal of holiness, the title of her new book. It's a really interesting conversation if you love fiction, and maybe if you've not really given it uh, enough thought, this will pique your interest to pick up some new books. As always, thanks for listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Jessica Hooten-Wilson. She's the Louise Cohen Scholar-in-Residence at the University of Dallas. She's the author of several books, including Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which she received a 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year in Arts and Culture Award for. She writes on great books, on literature, including authors like O'Connor and Dostoevsky and Walker Percy. And she has a new book out, one that I got a chance to read and I'm really excited about, entitled The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of the Literary Saints. Well, Jessica, it's a privilege and honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Chase, for bringing me on. Well, this book was one of those that uh, it, it built, I think, some of the best books are the books that make you want to read other books. And this was certainly one of those. In fact, one of the things I loved about the book was at the end of every chapter, you have an additional reading list as if uh, as if the book itself was not enough. There's five or six more books for every chapter. So I added quite a few new books to my reading list. But that's uh, one of the things I love about a great book. And this certainly is that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's my goal is just this has formed my imagination in all of these different books. And so I'm hoping to do likewise for other people. Well, I thought maybe a good place to start for a little context was um, tell us a little bit about the work that you're currently doing. I know in addition to writing, uh, you teach, you're serving in academia. What does that look like for you right now? What are you giving your time to? Well, for years, I was a typical professor, uh, maybe a little bit atypical in that my specialty was more interdisciplinary. And that's probably, a, it's a little bit more rare. My PhD was in theology and literature. So it's a program that doesn't exist anymore at Baylor University, but it was a joint program. And I actually served at Baylor teaching in the great text, which again was interdisciplinary. And the reason I'm bringing that up is that my uh, my vision or my way of seeing literature is vastly different than only being trained within the discipline. My goal was never to make more English majors <laughs> with what it was that I was doing. Mine was always an eye towards how does the story teach me about God and about myself and about other human beings. And uh, and I, I wanted to know more to answer those questions. I'm sorry, I wanted to read more fiction. So my academic life was very much about teaching in the classroom that way, teaching business majors and engineers and everyone else about how to love stories and how to look to stories for wisdom as resources towards moving us towards loving God more. And uh, in the last couple of years, that has changed somewhat, mostly because of COVID. I think a lot of people's jobs and lives changed 
And um, I began, began to move into a position where I was writing much more than I was teaching. So teaching has become a smaller part of my life during this season, but I still love the classroom. And so my books, in a sense, have become my way of teaching, my way of bringing these stories outside of the classroom and hopefully to the church and to schools and to larger audiences. One of the things I've tried really hard with this podcast to do is we we talk about a lot of pastoral books, a lot of theology books, just great Christian books, but we try as much as possible to also talk about just literature in general, and particularly novels as well. As a, a pastor, that was not something in my formal education that was really a part of the curriculum in any way. And honestly, it was sort of later in life that I really started reading more fiction and now recognizing how pivotal it's been. You know, honestly, looking back in ways maybe I'm not even fully aware of, it's been in critical, but it's sort of been there. And I know you write so much about this, the way fiction, not just Christian fiction, but great books and fiction in general, uh, it shapes us as believers. Mm -hmm. I'm curious for you personally what that experience has been like. Um, you've been approaching it from a teaching level, so there's certainly that passion there. But even outside of that, just personally or before this became sort of an area of academic focus for you, what was uh, what was the role that fiction played in your life as a believer? Well, I've been a reader since I was very young. I wrote my first little book when I was four or five years old. And so stories have always been what, what drew me. That's really been my vocational call has been knowing stories, loving stories, living in stories, stories and poetry, words, the beauty of language, um, the ways that we craft narrative, the way that we name the world around us. And it used to be hundreds of years ago that all of these disciplines were not separate. So if somebody like you who loved theology, it would just be natural for you to be studying the Greek myths and to be studying uh, great literature and great history as part of your training for ministry. And it, it's only in the recent century, actually, that we kind of separated those things out. So I come from a tradition. I, I did a lot of great books and, and personally, um, my vocation was very fitted to my educational journey because I was always trying to learn and know more, even as a, as a person, apart from the academy. The academy became the best home for that. But now outside of the academy, I'm still trying to, um, to invite everybody else into this, this way of being a Christian, this way of being a person in which you, you want to learn more and you don't have to go to school necessarily to study those things, but you should want to read great books. You should want to um, know more about the, the nature and the creation around you. You should want to know more. Um, that's what we're meant to do. I think that's that God put these desires in our heart to, to love and know more about the world that he's made. And there's just an endless amount of knowledge uh, that's available to us. I want to dig into that idea of these divisions a little bit more, too, because it's certainly true academically. You see the divisions of of uh, literature, the arts, uh, maybe versus more of a STEM focus. But I think that happens just generally as readers, too. We kind of imagine there's a there's like a novel type of reader or a fiction type of reader. Uh, or I write uh, quite a bit to men and I hear constantly from publishers, men don't read or there's only certain things men will read. Uh, this idea that novels or literature is just beneath the surface for all of us in culture seems less and less something people are aware of or, or accepting. Um, do you have an idea about how that's happened or or the consequences of that having happened? Yeah, it's such a problem. And I think a lot of it is a misunderstanding too. I mean, I, you know, you look at, um, in the Catholic world, Sertelanges wrote this book called The Intellectual Life in which he denounces novels as trifle play things that divert and distract us and, um, really treats them not just like cotton candy. He calls them poison. I mean, it's not just that they're, 
meaningless dessert. They are poison to your system, right? Um, Thomas Jefferson was the same way. He tells, I mean, and of course he's writing in the um, 1700s and early 1800s about how novels are such a distraction. And the novels he's talking about are what we now call classics. Um, and so we have this kind of, it, it's a constant refrain that is untrue uh, ever since the novel's creation, that novels are for the silly and for the trite rather than recognizing novels as a newer, I mean, only a few hundred years old, a newer genre that fits in with the great books tradition of storytelling and uh, beauty and aesthetics. Uh, so I think, I think this is why you have a divide in our cultures that you also have in current, like 21st century, you have a divide between the pop novels and the high novels. You have the now it's a move away from like literary versus non-literary types of novels. And we even have to make those kinds of distinction. So, um, so I think that's where, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, sure that I'm showing a genesis, but I think that there is kind of this repeated antagonism towards the novel that's really unfair for what it is and what it can do. Well, you redeem a little bit about that by showing what these novels can do in our lives through the book. Um, again, the book, The Scandal of Holiness. I want to ask about the title, too. It's such a powerful title and a great cover. Uh, the book really is beautiful. But where did this idea, The Scandal of Holiness, and particularly Renewing the Imagination, those two link together for you? Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking. I The title does mean a lot to me. Um, a lot, you know, there's several publishers who don't allow you to pick your own title. I was blessed that Brazos let me do mine. <laughs> yeah, I wondered if it was a conversation because, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't strike you as literary, literary book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely, it's a title that meant something to me that I've been playing with this phrase for a while. And uh, when I start, first started being drawn towards holiness and literature, 2013, 2014, I didn't have the scandal in mind until I was teaching the violent Barrett away. Oh no, not violent Barrett away. Flannery O'Connor. I was teaching the wise blood, her um, first novel, not her second novel. And Flannery does a note to the second edition in which she says, it is a scandal to readers that a belief in Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death. And I thought, whoa, that's such an interesting way to phrase scandal. Whereas most people think of scandal in terms of evil, she's talking about the way the New Testament uses the word scandalon, meaning it is a stumbling block, something as transcendent, as true, as vital um, to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's how the New Testament writers, when, when they use scandalon, that's how they're using it, is that's what's scandalous. Evil is not actually scandalous. Evil is something that's so familiar to us and so within our human heart. We we can imagine, you know, taking our car and running it into another car. We can imagine doing all sorts of evil. Um, that doesn't take a lot of imagination. Holiness takes a lot of imagination because you're trying to reach something that's beyond you um, and something that is other. I mean, that's what holiness means. It's God's otherness from us um, that he's also giving us a journey towards. And that is a true scandal. So I, it really became something that kind of gripped me and that I've been wrestling with for, for almost a decade now. Mm, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, I was thinking Kierkegaard has this idea that the opposite of faith is not doubt, as we would sometimes frame it, but the opposite of faith is offense, or he's using the same word, this idea of, of scandal, that Christ is for all of us a kind of stumbling stone, and the narrative of Christ causes us, sort of breaks the pace that we're on in our own life, and forces us for Kierkegaard to decide between leaving offended by it or having faith drawn out of us by this moment of pause, this stumbling over Christ. 
Oh, absolutely. And you were talking about Walker Percy earlier. So Walker Percy takes that idea from Kierkegaard and then, of course, and writes his fiction from it. Um, and then earlier than both O'Connor or Percy, we have this throughout the tradition. Julian of Norwich in her showings, her divine revelations, she actually has this parable that God reveals to her in which the Lord calls his servant to him and the servant stumbles and falls. And it's the stumbling block. She starts meditating on, okay, what does this mean? Is this Adam and the first fall or like, or is this each of us stumbling towards God that we have to stumble towards God because running full, you know, force where, where we think we know the direction and we think we know the way and we think we know how to get there best. Um, God has to cause us to stumble so we can actually get towards him. It's a, it's a paradox. This just really demands our attention. Yeah. Okay. So that connects really well to what you're doing with literature because a novel does that, right? I mean, a novel is sort of like constantly stumbling your way through it. It forces a certain pace. It surprises you. It's forcing you to interact with the story on on its terms, not just your own sort of preconceptions of it, which is this parallel with what Christ is doing as a stumbling block as well. It's really interesting. Um the book weaves in your story in an interesting way, too. That was the other thing that struck me about how you chose to to approach it. It's almost bits of memoir in your reading life, but then also these larger lessons that are coming out of these great works as well. How did you go about organizing this book? And there's so many books within the book. Um, just your approach and organization of all that material. Yeah. Uh, so I knew that I wanted to write outside of the academic world uh, for this particular book. So I had previously written three and edited one, all published by academic presses in the past. And so it was written very much particularly to teach teachers, right? To teach professors about these things that I had become an expert in, O'Connor, Dostoevsky, Solzhenitsyn. This book was, I'm not teaching teachers. I It's more of a pastoral book. It is, okay, I believe literature has a place in the life of a Christian, in the life of the church. And therefore I do have to reflect personally on what it has looked like in my life outside of what I know as a literary expert. And uh, and so Lauren Winter has just been kind of a, a hero of mine for almost two decades. We met 16 years ago. I recently found a book where she signed it 16 years ago, the first time I met her. And uh, she was leading a class at the Collegeville Institute where a group of us would get together and we were talking about our works in progress. And so she was so helpful kind of moving me out of literary criticism, which was a habit. I knew how to write literary criticism. But how do I move towards connecting that to my own life so that other people can see how to connect the books to their life? And so she was just very helpful in trying to get me to restructure and reorganize um, in that direction. Yeah, well, I think it comes through really clear. And uh, I think it's a really helpful part of it as well. The other big theme, I think, is this idea of imagination. It comes through at the beginning, but it's also in the title that part of what literature does is is train our imagination, uh, expand our imagination Many Christians may not associate the word imagination with something critical to their faith. For you, why is that such an important thing? And why such an important thing now for us to recapture? Oh, man, I could do like an entire seminar <laughs> on the imagination. So I always like to introduce people uh, to the trinity of the imagination. We think of faith and reason all the time. That has become kind of a mantra within Christian culture, faith and reason, faith and reason. Um, it's really a trinity. It is faith, reason, and imagination. So as C.S. Lewis, when he writes, he's renewing our ideas of the medieval world. When he writes on the imagination, he thinks of the human person as three concentric circles in which imagination is that outer circle. And then the intellect or where reason plays uh, is the faculty there and then will at the center. So what you actually do 
is not something that's kind of a free floating existential choice. The choice is born out of not only your reason, but then also first how you made sense of the world, which is the role of the imagination, right? It's the faculty that gives meaning to the intellectual experience that you then analyze. It's our first um, greeting of the world, right? The way that we sense the world, the way that we see it, the way that we imagine it. And uh, literature is becomes these case studies that help us practice ways of imagining, ways of seeing outside of our own initial experiences. And then it gives us this great storehouse by which to see everything else in our lives. And without that storehouse, we really are encountering the world regularly as blank slates, right? Trying to step out and only judge or discern or analyze by our experience and by our intellect. And that that's a real gap. That's a lack for the human person it was never meant to do that. And um, the human person, you know, looking at the Bible, the Bible is not a revelation of that only responds to your intellect. It's a revelation of visions. It's a re- revelation of stories. It's um, wisdom literature and, uh, you know, who God's people are and the relationship you have between his people and, and each other and other cultures and the ways that you respond to other cultures. And all of that is imaginary and not in a fantasy sense, but in a sense of trying to put your place there, trying to see yourself in these stories and in these worlds, um, trying to understand who God is, not just cognitively, but by your heart, by your soul, by your emotions, by your way of envisioning who God is. And so it's very much a necessary faculty for the Christian. It strikes me that it's like our earlier conversation in that I think some people just assume that imagination is almost like a personality trait, right? Some people are just more imaginative than other people. But you're saying it's more like a muscle, like we all have this sense of imagination. It's just how much we cultivate it and and how much we learn to to see the world through it and open ourselves up to this idea that there is more going on than just our past experience. Is that the right way of thinking of it? Wow, Chase, that is a that's a great way. Yes, I talk a lot about uh, working that muscle, right? And that it, when you first begin, it, it you have very weak muscles of imagination, right? Um, Jean Leclerc wrote this book called uh, "The Love of Learning: The Desire of God," and he says, you know, the medievals had such healthy imaginations, such vibrant imaginations, and as Christians, we've really become weak and lazy is the way that he refers to us, the adjectives he uses. So a lot of our ways of imagining have just been conscripted by our culture rather than for us to be, you know, volitional, enterprising, really training and cultivating and recognizing that if we don't do that kind of training, then we'll just be shaped however the world wants to shape us. Like we have to actually counter that shaping process that's happening to our imaginations all the time. How specifically does a novel and the characters within that novel do that for us? Um, I don't think it's as rudimentary as, you know, these are characters that are heroes or models and look at which life works out better and then emulate that. That's not the way you're reading these novels or these great books. So how is it these characters, how is it that they expand our imagination and the benefit that it has for us in faith? Yeah, because I think that the way you're talking about is very didactic. It's very Aesop fables, right? Um, And people try to do this with the Bible. Like, let's look at the heroes of the Bible. Well, the reality is the Bible is full of people who failed. The Bible is not full of heroes. (laughs) You know, like the only hero in the story of the Bible is God. It's Jesus, right? It's not... Um, Abraham fails, you know, he makes tons of mistakes. You're not supposed to emulate his behavior. Um, you're supposed to imitate his faith. And where does his faith come from? Well, it's a gift from God 
and it's a call that he's responding to, right? So it's it's a uh, the move of faith in the life of a person. So these novels then don't become models of didactic, like here, follow this person like Aesop's fable and let's learn their life lesson. But it's more follow them as they followed Christ. Look at the way that Christ is calling within their lives and learn how to hear that call in your own life and then listen and receive the gift that God is giving you to respond to him, right? It's a much more contemplative process than it is um, kind of our self-improvement way of being where we, you know, like you said, we just have these models and we just imitate their character. Um, It's more having our desires, our very desires and hearts transformed by loving what these characters learn to love, by pursuing the holiness that they pursue, by practicing forms of listening and ways of paying attention and ways of imagining that will help us see what God's doing already in our lives. It strikes me that there are huge parallels here, as you're pointing out with the way we read the Bible. Um, It does seem so. And look, I come from this training of how to preach the Bible, how to study the Bible. And it is like there are hermeneutics classes and there are principles and here's how you, and these things matter. And I think they're generally right, but it's really easy to turn the Bible and the stories in the Bible into uh, almost like an animal we dissect and pin out all the parts and label them and kill the thing in the process. Um, Mm. But there is something about these characters in the Bible that are more like companions. And there is something in these stories that I think can't be reduced, can't be simplified. But when you accept them, like you're describing, accepting these novels, this this great works of literature, there's a kind of expansion quality to them, a way of stepping into a bigger world instead of just a smaller world that's properly labeled and now in your control. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, Alan Jacobs wrote this book, I think it was just last year or the year before, Breaking Bread with the Dead. And he uses the metaphor of the thick versus the thin soul and that some of this great literature can actually thicken our souls. Well, one of the ways I think that that happens and that I'm kind of drawing on here in the scandal of holiness is it happens because you're filling up your memory warehouse. You're filling up your treasure trove, the, the treasure of your heart with all of these resources, all of these friends and company of people that are not living in your time and place, but have lived before um, live it, and in large part, they live in your imagination as much as Job does, as much as um, the parables do, as much as even like we don't know Abraham. <laughs> we know the story of Abraham. And that story then makes Abraham a part of our lives in a way that thickens our soul, that we may have that, like Hebrews says, we may have those lives of faith within us to face our own crises of faith before us, to face our own suffering and trials before us by having this whole thickening process that happens with this company that inhabits us. Well, I do want to jump into the book specifically a little bit, and and there's no way to go sort of chapter by chapter through a book like this. Like It deserves more time and attention. We could have a discussion on each chapter. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit because I think in in the connection to what you just said, this idea of the the preparation that literature can be for later life or or awareness for things to come, that really comes through in chapters like the one you have on suffering and Flannery O'Connor. Um, how has Flannery O'Connor's work that I know has been so important to you, how has it shaped the way you've thought about suffering and the way Christians should be thinking about that, maybe even before that suffering comes, as I know Flannery herself did? Yeah. Well, Flannery praying in, you know, when she was 20 years old, you know, Lord, I suppose uh, the pain is necessary to receive the grace. God help me want to suffer. I mean, these kind of prayers that were not masochistic, they were, I know suffering is real. I know it is going to happen. And if I'm going to see a way towards redemption and not be overcome or oppressed by my suffering, then I need the eyes of grace. I need 
God's vision on these things. And I think that's, that's really been transformative for me because it's, it's not saying that suffering is good. That's so the wrong way to view it, but it's saying that no suffering is so bad that God cannot be good through it, that God cannot make good happen from it. And the problem has been, of course, people who jump immediately to want to see the the Sunday of things, the, the resurrection of things. And Flannery is saying, you know, these Christians, they want Christ to be an electric blanket when, of course, it's the cross. And she helps us see the cross. She helps us see the negative um, the, you know, the suffering, the cruciform life that we're being called to, but recognizing the cruciform life is the only way to go towards resurrection. You can't bypass it. Um, but you also can't, uh, just dwell in it and act like that, that that's the end of the story either. And so she just really kills that either or through her stories. And she makes you wrestle with the reality of both the, the good Friday and the, the holy Sunday. Yeah. She seems like she also is doing this this imagination piece of forcing us to think about suffering that perhaps we haven't experienced or to wrestle with not only the uncomfortableness of it, but that mystery of it, that, that, that sort of inability to make it an either, or that's so obvious in her work. Um, seems like it's doing the thing we've been describing. It's, it's allowing us to experience suffering in a way sort of vicariously without having actually lived it. That might then change the way that we later on suffer as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of her stories, people would say that they had hold of the wrong horror. And and what she meant by that is that um, they were acting as though she was causing the suffering, like she was causing the horrors to happen. And what you're saying is more true, that she just recognized the reality that horrors will come, that horrors are there and they are all around us. And the only um, question we have is how we respond. It's not a question about whether we can ever prevent suffering. We can't build utopias. We can't create a world in which no one gets hurt. No one dies. Nothing bad happens. That's not possible. And that's a delusion. And it's actually, from her perspective, it's a very satanic delusion. Instead, the reality is, how do you love the sufferer? How do you see God at work when you're suffering? Uh, How do you continue praying when suffering is the reality, right? So it's more about what you do as a faithful believer and response and her stories demand that you try to see them from that perspective. I was teaching um, a group of women had just read Violent Bird Away, <laughs> the well-read moms group. And uh, so I went up there, I was supposed to give a keynote talk. I remember like my talk was actually gonna be on Dante, but then everybody was like wrestling with this Violent Bird Away that they had just read and they hated it so much. They hated her novel. And so I just kind of threw my Dante paper off the stage and was like, all right, we're just going to talk Violent Bird away the whole time. And one of them afterwards said, but why doesn't she just tell us that? Like, why doesn't she just say, okay, suffering is real and it's hard and God gets you through or something like that. And the thing about Flannery is that you don't learn from that. Those are the truisms or the ways of reducing things to bumper stickers don't sink in. She has to transform your desires by having you wrestle with the things you don't understand. Again, the stumbling block idea is there. Novels force you to wrestle with these things so that your heart changes, not just the answers to the questions change. And I think that that's, it's almost um, impossible to explain without going through that. But people can remember having read stories that did that for them and realize that the more you do that, the more you're being reshaped and your desires are actually changing. The way you approach suffering and see it will change. 
I think it's the chapter right after that when you write specifically on death and you talk about how fiction can be a kind of meditation on death. It struck me right away as, well, number one, how prominent death is in literature, uh, that novelists can't help themselves. It is it is sort of the stakes of life or death so often, even when it's not physical death, death is always present in these conflicts of novels, good ones. Um, and that we live in a time where people seem reluctant to think about death, even though we will all experience it. It's sort of the topic that even sometimes in churches seems like um, can't be broached. But yet fiction does that over and over. And you see, you see that as a, a kind of beneficial meditation. Absolutely. I think I was so astounded a year or so ago. And I think it was quarantine because I was watching a lot of bad movies. Um, so there was uh, Jumanji 2. <laughs> this is so random to bring up. But like, it just shows you what the culture is offering us against literature that can actually give us good resources. Um, Jumanji 2, not a bad, you know, funny movie. But the end of it is a character is dying. He has cancer or something. And so rather than go back and face the suffering of cancer and whatever God could do through that sickness and that heartache and that pain and just, I mean, all the tragedy that goes with cancer, rather than submit himself to that, he chooses to be a Pegasus avatar in a video game. That's how he's going to end his days. He refuses to go back and face death. And it was supposed to be uplifted. I mean, there was like the great grand music that uplifts this choice. Like, yay, he gets like to it's the honorable choice. Yeah. Right, to be a horse avatar rather than go back and face being a human being in reality. And I thought this is just so emblematic of our culture that we cannot face death. And yet it is the one thing that every single human being must face. It's the reality you cannot escape. And all of our culture is trying to get us to escape it. I love what Cornell West says. He says the liberal arts are there to teach us how to die. I think that's so true that um, all of our ways of educating, whether it's in the church or in the schools or just the education of life, is, a, is meant to be training how to die well. And I don't think you can live well if you're not seeing that the ultimate end is death. And of course, then for those of us who believe more than death, there's life after. Um, but you have to have that kind of mindset, that imagination towards that end. I worry so much as a pastor that our churches in a reluctance to talk about death and a reluctance to, to to be dark that we've created these kinds of services where it's only the highlight reel it's sort of the instagram of life and yet the experience of worship isn't integrated with all of what life is both the suffering the death um everything has to be good at church and then you go home where things aren't always good and fiction seems like it, it has avoided that, that there are in these great stories, both of those things that feels more congruent. I wish there was a way for us in our churches to be able to to do that. And and part of the challenge is I'm always careful bashing on pastors. Sometimes it's easy to give the people what they want as well, too. Um, we don't live in a time where people want those kinds of meditations that I think you're right are so are so important. Yeah, I, I think I'd be the worst pastor. Um, I'm just, I you know, in the sense of um, I'm more drawn to Dante, whose calling was, do not be a too timid friend of truth. And the necessity of just saying the hard truths, dealing with the hard truths and facing the hard truths. And pastors don't have answers, but neither do congregants. But recognizing that we don't have answers, there's great mysteries. And we we have each other, <laughs> you know, in the midst of that mystery, like we are the body of Christ, we have that reality. I think that's also what my book is trying to do is say like, you're not 
alone with these mysteries. You don't have to have the answers to death. You don't know how, like, if you don't know how to face grief, you're not alone. (laughs) You know, if you don't know what to do with senseless violence and war and plague, and you're not alone. These have been problems and realities that people have faced for centuries. So don't try to answer them by yourself and don't try to only reason through them, but be okay with feeling them and, and feeling them in community and in conversation. And I, I, I truly believe that the more that we face these mysteries and really embrace these mysteries, um, we are looking more like the body of Christ and, and less like the individuals that fix problems that the world tried to, tries to turn us into. Yeah, that's that's really what your book is, The Scandal of Holiness, the subtitle, A Company of Literary Saints. It's you introducing us to these saints that you've discovered through your journey that can help us when we do have those unanswered questions. Um, we have a lot of pastors that listen. How do you think reading fiction, reading novels could benefit a pastor? Yeah, you know, I'm so grateful. There's actually two pastors who have written books along these lines this year. <laughs> so um, Austin Cardi wrote a book called The Pastor's Bookshelf. And then Claude Acho wrote a book called Reading Black Books about how African-American literature teaches us about the life of faith. And so um, I'm not alone in this effort right now to make sure pastors move back towards reading literature. Eugene Peterson used to carve out time during his day, you know, twice a week, he would have a note in his calendar that said, um, uh, read FD or something like that, right? He was reading Dostoevsky. It was his appointments with Dostoevsky twice a week. And he did this with a lot of other novelists as well. It's like when he needed a mentor, the, the life of a pastor can be really lonely. Like who do you turn to because when you have these questions because you, you don't want to look weak in front of your congregation. You don't want to look like you don't have the answers in front of your congregation because you're their shepherd, right? You're, their, you're pastoring them. And so Peterson turned to fiction. He turned to Dostoevsky as a mentor. And Wallace Stegner and other writers to mentor him through the things that were mysterious and unknown, to give names to the things that we don't know how to name sometimes in our lives, uh, to feel like he was surrounded by friends on this journey. And I think that for pastors who are probably feeling alone and also probably just overwhelmed by the contemporary problems, uh, the current headlines or the current debates, these books give us a vision that is expansive. It is often global. It is historically unbound. It shows us the timeless, which is what we're supposed to be doing is practicing that communal, timeless, mysterious response to the world we're living in. I want to ask sort of a flip question to that too, for the writers that are in the church, um, for those who are maybe aspiring novelists or working on novels, what is your encouragement to those people of faith who are interested in writing fiction and the role that it plays, particularly considering we, we haven't been too positive about people's uh, embracing of fiction. Uh, it's a hard time, I think, to, to try to tell stories both in the church and outside of the church, meaningful ones. So what would you say to a, a Christian who's listening, who's saying, I feel some sort of even vocational calling to take up writing these stories to writing novels? Yeah, I do think that there is a call to writing fiction, but I also think that uh, more people sense it than probably need to. <laughs> so, um, I don't want to dissuade people from writing fiction. I do believe that there is a necessity to writing great fiction and to telling great stories. At the same time, we need readers probably a lot more than we need writers. This current cultural moment has just a plethora of writers, and there's a lot of people that want to write. And I, I meet them so regularly, so maybe I'm just inundated with people who write me letters about wanting to write. And I think there's places to kind of craft that, to hone that. Like if this is a journey where you are on this, you want to go to an MFA program. I teach in the St. Thomas online MFA program. Um, 
you know, just for Christian writers. That's exactly what it's for is training in the Christian tradition. So I do believe that that is a call that we need to embrace and that the church needs to uplift these people in that call. But I also think that it's something that, that needs discernment too. If you don't love reading every single day, if you don't love reading novels, um, if you don't love a sentence, then maybe question whether the life of writing is really what you want, or you just love reading and that there's going to be a place for you in a classroom teaching reading and making sure other people love novels as much as you love novels. So I I guess I'm just more hesitant um, to make sure everyone becomes a writer and more excited about those who love writing, who would also want to practice um, sharing their love for reading with others. Yeah, it strikes me if we were saying that following Jesus is a path of scandal, of stumbling, uh, trying to be a writer is a path of scandal and stumbling as well, too. So I do think you're right. It takes a kind of calling uh, because it is so difficult, particularly to do it well and in a meaningful way. I think the honesty of that answer is actually really, really helpful. Um, The book we've been talking about, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. It's out this past March and uh, definitely worth picking up. Like I said, any book that leads you on to to more reading is one of my favorite kinds of reads. And this book certainly does that and is helpful in so many ways. Um, Jessica, I know you mentioned before you're working on even more writing. And I think I've read online there's projects in the works as well. Anything you can talk about, things to be looking forward to in the future as well? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I've got... um... Another book came out in May called Learning the Good Life. So if you want something that's not as contemporary, but has text from the great tradition that is more inclusive. So we have Eastern writers and women and persons of color, which are often underrepresented in the great tradition. This is a good reader for that. And that just came out in May with Sondervan, Learning the Good Life. Um, next March, 2023, Reading for the Love of God. You were talking about how to read. So I wrote a book on how to read, <laughs> to read for the love of God and what that practice actually looks like and uh, how to read well. I also have Flannery O'Connor's unfinished third novel, and that is supposed to come out next year, Lord willing, um, that I worked on and put together. And I'm also working on a book with the liberating arts, and it's called, uh, well, tentatively titled Who's Afraid of the Liberal Arts? And it's an edited collection on answering the tough questions, right? Are the liberal arts relevant? Are they racist? Are they um, necessary? And and so forth. So really tackling the hard questions there. Yeah, man, some fascinating projects. I I had no idea uh, O'Connor had a third novel that uh, was unfinished. How much of it was, uh, now I'm just asking personal questions, how much of it uh, was unfinished? Um, It's really unfinished. So there's 378 pages of the work, but it was a lot of repeated episodes. And that's why it's never kind of come together. And I was asked by the estate many years ago to put it together. Um, and we've just gone through lots of different drafts of, of that process and trying to figure out what was best for this to see the light of day when so much of the story is really not there. How can we still get people to see these episodes and and see what Flannery was up to? So, um, but again, it's a it's a process making sure that we honor the life of Flannery and her legacy and not turn out something that was still in process without making her look like she didn't know what she was doing. Um, but also to share that man, she was on to some great stuff and. If the Lord would have given her more time, how many cool things she would have done, you know, post 1964. Yeah, and that she was writing all the way through it, you know, uh, all of her suffering. That's, yeah, that's remarkable. I'm really excited to see that. Yeah, thanks. Well, Jessica, thank you again. Uh, I just blessings on all the work you're doing. I'm so thankful for it. And uh, we just keep having these conversations, inspiring people to read. And I think you're doing it as well as anybody else. And I'm really grateful for it. So thank you so much. No, thank you, Chase. I really appreciate it.
can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com, as well as information about Jessica's work, as well as the book that we've been discussing, The Scandal of Holiness. Also, make sure and check out her other works that have released and are soon to be released. Also, if you haven't had a chance to pick up The Five Masculine Instincts, I'd love for you to take a look at it. You can find it anywhere you buy books. And if you have read the book, maybe you'd consider taking a moment to leave a review wherever you purchased it. That can just be a rating by clicking one of the stars or typing a short message. I love getting feedback on the book, getting to hear what you thought of it, how it was helpful, and it helps other readers consider buying the book as well, too. If you've done that already, thank you so much. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you.